Welcome. You're about to listen to a podcast of one or two songs from a New Heights Fellowship Worship Service and then a full sermon from that service. We hope that what you're listening to is a huge blessing. At the end of the podcast, we'll give you a little bit more information about the ministry. And in the meantime, enjoy and grow and reach new heights in here.
Praise the Lord. As I mentioned, I'm glad to be here today and I'm glad to go to the Word just now. I've been in this passage of Scripture and and the passages that lead up to it um, for, uh, feels like several months now, and I'm pretty excited about what God is saying through these verses. I hope that those of you who have been here and been following along with the sermon series have been blessed. Um, And we will be looking at essentially the story of the falling down of the walls of Jericho today, but we will do that um, without, we're not going to be able to read the whole thing all the way back to the beginning of the chapter. So uh, I'm, I'm going to give you like the 30-second summary. Uh, Joshua and the people of Israel crossed, crossed the Jordan, and then when they were about ready to take the Jericho, or take the city of Jericho, God told them to march around the city the first time, one, first day one time, second day one, one time, third day one time, to the seventh day, and then seven times, and then uh, give a huge shout with the trumpets, and the walls would all fall down. That's what God told them to do. And that is essentially what they did. They didn't get everything right, as we saw last week. But after all that they had been through, the camping on the edge of the Jordan, the being with their parents in the wilderness all those decades, um, and then walking through the Jordan on dry land, and then camping on that side of the Jordan, and then having everybody to be circumcised, mostly as grown men, which is a very very painful experience, uh, that we, are ne- we now come to that moment in time at which God has them to take Jericho. And so it is a huge moment for them. And if we see ourselves in the story and we listen to what God is trying to say through it, I want to share with you that it is a huge moment for us. Um, I'm going to read the text and expose it, uh, and then I'm going to do a little illustration, and then we'll go right into the points. We will be in the points and the summary uh, faster than you expect, um, so be ready for it. All right. So if you would, we usually say amen, we hoot, we holler. This marks that moment in time at which we go to the scripture and we listen to what God would have to say and we allow ourselves to be changed. So I want you to take a breath, hold it for the next about seven seconds, and then when I announce the Bible verses, I would like you to say whatever it is you said the last time you were scared or excited or whatever, and please no foul language. Okay? You ready? Here we go. Joshua chapter 6, verse 16. Amen. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. We mark the time because now we listen to what God has to say. And I hope that even as I speak, you are going to listen to God, not to me. I may or may not get everything right or wrong. Um, I'm certainly trying to do say everything that God would want me to say. But I really want you to listen to the Lord as we read these verses and then expose the verses. And then as I try to bring some things, I think God showed me. Okay, so here we go. Um, I'm actually going to begin reading uh, in verse 16. But remember, this is right up until the moment. They marched around the city seven times, and here we come. The moment of the fall of the walls of Jericho. Joshua chapter 6, verse 16, and it says, And it came about at the seventh time, when the priests blew trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the city shall be under the ban. It and all that is in it belongs to the Lord. Only Rahab the harlot. Hmm. It's interesting, isn't it? It goes right from the command into some extra instructions that are going to go along with this. If we had stopped with the shout for the Lord has given you the city, they could have all gone up and shouted and the walls fall down and it's, you know, this sounds like a wonderful day. We're going to get the city and everything that it's in it and it's like the lottery. Just won the lottery, right? But he says, and the city shall be under the ban. It and all that is in it belongs to the Lord. Only Rahab the harlot and all who are with her in the house shall live. Because she had the messengers whom we sent. But as for you, only keep yourselves from the things under the ban. Lest you 
covet them, that means you want them, you get uh, greedy toward the things that are under the ban, and take some of the things under the ban, so you would make the camp of Israel accursed and bring trouble on it. And we stop there for one second. So he said, we're going to shout and we're going to go take the city. We already know the walls are going to fall. That's what he, they've already said that back a few verses ago. And he says, but everything in the city is under the ban. Now the ban is the thing that Moses talked, back, talked about back in Deuteronomy. It was actually first brought up in the book of Numbers. And basically it means that everything that's in there belongs to God, not to you. And so because it belongs to God, God can ordain what happens to it. Okay, And in this case, he's saying all the people that remained that did not flee when they were given the opportunity to, man, woman, and child, even unborn children, all of them will be wiped out. And he's saying that the city will be leveled, burnt to the ground. And historically speaking, that is what happens. As we're about to see, they destroyed it all. But he says, only keep yourselves or restrain yourselves, watch over yourselves, be self-disciplined, you might say, because you could covet after the things that, got, that are under the ban, the things that God said belong to him, and then you must do a certain thing with them. And if you did that, you would make the camp of Israel accursed and bring trouble on it. Verse 19. But all the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So he's saying the wealth that you find, that instead of coveting after it, put it all in the treasury of God. Okay, So they can use it for the coming building of the temples. They can use it for the worship of gods. They can use it to, to pay for the existence of the priests who don't have other income and for to feed them and for the um, feasts and festivals and religious ceremonies that will happen and, and so on. He says in verse 20, So the people shouted. And I don't think they said a word. I don't think they said Yahtzee or Amen. I think they just let out a guttural scream, a cry that would, uh, if you were standing next to just one of them, you would say, Ugh! And they just let it all out. And the priests blew the trumpets. And it came about when the people heard the sound of the trumpet that the people shouted with a great shout. And the wall fell down flat. Right in its place, as we, we talked about last week. So that the people went up into the city, every man straight ahead. That's what they were told to do. Every man go up from exactly where you were. And they took the city. And they utterly destroyed everything in the city, both man and woman, young and old, and ox and sheep and donkey with the edge of the sword. And Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, go into the harlot's house and bring the woman and all she has, and all she has out of there, so her people and all of her possessions out of there, as you have sworn to her. So the young men who were the spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brothers and all she had. They also brought out all her relatives and placed them outside the camp of Israel. They didn't become part of Israel, immediately anyway, but they were brought to safety out of the city. They were not under the ban. And they burned the city with fire and all that was in it, only the silver and the gold and the articles of bronze and iron, they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. However, Rahab the harlot and her father's household and all she had, Joshua spared. And she has lived in the midst of Israel to this day. So to the writing of this text, and there's a really important phrase there to this day, meaning um, even to our day in a sense, because she becomes uh, an ancestor of Jesus. Even though she was a harlot, she becomes an ancestor of Jesus. 
And it says, and she has lived in the midst of Israel to this day, for she hid the messengers from Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Then Joshua made them take an oath at that time saying, cursed before the Lord is the man who rises up and builds this, this city Jericho. With the loss of his firstborn, he shall pay its foundation. And with the loss of his youngest son, he shall set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. Now aside for one second, I have to tell you, in chapter 7, we will learn that there was a man who did not fully honor the man. He did not keep himself from coveting the things that God said would go into the treasury of the Lord. And so they're about to run into some trouble that way. All right. So I don't want you to think, even though it says here that every, all was done perfectly the way it was supposed to be, but there was an individual, and we'll read about him in chapter 7, who did not follow the instructions perfectly. And the camp of Israel does begin to have problems. But here we have a summary, and in summary, in total, they all shouted, they all went up from their place, and they all put the entire city to the ban, except for Rahab the harlot and all of her people. All right, so that's the text, or at least the main text. We're going to see a few others before we're done. So this sermon is about being ripped off. Let me give you an illustration. Uh, when I came out of high school, I took one semester off, and then I went to college. So in 1989, I started at Bowling Green State University, and I was immediately, from the day I started there, I was a journalism major. I had dreamed about, from the age of 11 or 12 years old, being a journalist, writing for a living, um, reporting on various topics, a journalist, a pure journalist. And so I went into that program, I was accepted into the program, but there were 150 of us that were accepted into the program, and the program tended to average about 30 per year. So there were, I didn't understand this at the time, and I found out in my sophomore years they were trying really hard to push everybody to step out of the program and to take it at most as a minor, not as a major. Uh, but I was a journalism major as a freshman. And I had to take comp one and comp two, which is pretty much what every freshman takes. It's English. And you learn to write. And then, of course, you go on in all your other classes and have to write tons of papers. And that's your pre preparation for that. So I took comp one. I did fabulous. And I'm not... Not prideful about this. It was graded on a satisfactory, unsatisfactory scale, and I was strongly in the satisfactory category. The second semester, I took count two. Now, little did I know, count two was the class that they were going to use to widow down the journalism majors from 156 of us to 30. I didn't know that. I did not know what was going on. So I took the class, and in that class, we had to write a 12-page term paper every two weeks. You get about a half an hour in class, you could ask the instructor questions four times, and then you go to class four times, turn in a 12-page term paper. That means with bibliography, blah, 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 the whole nine yards. So the kind of thing you might write twice a semester, we were writing it every two weeks. It was a tough class. I did reasonably well. About halfway through the class, I found out that you had to get an A in the class to continue as a journalism major, or you have to take the class over again to get an A to continue as a journalism. You had to have an A as a journalism major in COMP 2 to continue. Now, at the end of the semester, two weeks to go to the final exam, I had a grade in the, the, to get an A, you had to have a 92, I think it was. And I had like a 91.7 going into the final exam. Now, I'm very concerned about this because I want to be a journalist. I'm in the journalism class major, and I've, I've been working my butt off in this class, and I'm thinking, I need an A in this class so I can continue. I don't want to take this class over again. I do not want to write eight more term papers in 16 weeks. I don't want to do it. It's hard. It's been hard work, grueling hours late at night. It was terrible. 
And of course, I back in the day, I was a procrastinator, a real bad. So class is at 10 a.m. and I'm finishing my term paper at 9:15. Jump in my car and drive behind a truck because I didn't stop and get gas to Bowling Green to turn my paper in. That's what it was like. I don't want to do that again. So I go to the instructor and I say, okay, so I have a 91.7 in the class. So based on my exam grade, what is the likelihood I'm going to get an A in this class? And he says, if you even get a high B on your exam, you will get an A in the class. I'm like, oh, well, I mean, I, I need to do the best I can. Now, the exam was you walk in the room and you have an hour, 15 minutes, you sit in the room, and they give you a topic, and you have to write a 15 to 20 page composition on the topic. That was the exam. No advanced warning, no advanced research, whatever. And this was before computers. So this was handwritten, had to be legible, not in cursive, manuscript in blue or black ink in a composition book. We sit down, write a 15, 20 page composition from scratch, just got the information two minutes ago. But I've been writing a paper every two weeks, and we did some of this back in California. I got this. I can do this. I'm going to get at least that high B so I can go on as a journalism major. So the day of the exam comes, I go in, I get my topic. I don't know what it was. I wrote the, the paper. I turned it in. I'm hopeful. So about a week later, we get our exam books back. I got an A on the composition. It was a low A. It was like 92.1 or something, but it was an A. And I'm going, ah, awesome. I, I'm, I got an A in composition two. I get to go on and be a journalism major. Then my grade card came out, and I got a B in the class. And I'm thinking to myself, how is this possible? So I go to the professor's office to talk to him about the grade. I'm saying, you told me if I even got a high B, I would get an A in the class. And now I've gotten an A on the composition, but I have a B in the class. That means I have to take comp over again in order to be able to be a journalism major. And I don't want to do that. Please change the grade. This is what I'm thinking. Now, remember who I was. Some of you know who I was back then. I was extremely inhibited. So I'm, my heart was at 150 beats a minute. My, I've got sweat coming out places I didn't know I had sweat glands as I'm walking to the professor's office. And I get there. As I get there, his office on the side of a big hallway. There are 20 students waiting in line to talk to him about their grade. And I would have had to get in line. What was the other part of my personality back then? You hate lines. I could not wait. I was not capable of waiting. So I left and went to the off-campus student center, took a nap, had a snack, came back. When I got back, there were 15 students waiting in line. Not the same 15 students. He had cleared those 20 and probably a bunch in between, but there were another 15 students waiting in line. And this is what I heard come out of the door of his office. A young lady, probably 19, 20 years old, she said, you told me if I got an A on my exam, I would get an A in the class. And I got an A on my exam. I got a B in the class. What happened? And he said, this is college. I'm the professor. That's your grade. There's nothing you can do about it. And I could get in line and be the 16th person in the line and say the exact same thing that she did. And I don't think I would have got, I didn't think then, and I still don't think I would have gotten a different response because they were using that class to weed out journalism majors. I did not get in line. I left, and that was the end of my time as a journalism major because I couldn't continue and I wasn't going to take that class again. And I wasn't convinced, even if I had taken the class again, that I would have gotten an A no matter how well I did because I did well enough to get an A. Sometimes in life, you just get ripped off. Things do not go your way. You buy the car that turns out to be a lemon. You get the professor that turns out to be giving people B's when they deserve A's. You get the exam that's over stuff that you didn't study for because they gave you the wrong study sheet. And you go back and say, oh, I had the wrong study sheet. And they're like, oh, well, you should have learned this information anyway. 
Sometimes in life, you just get, forgive me if I say it this way, screwed. And there's nothing you can do about it. Now, I want you to bear in mind that as we look at this text. Because I want to say to you, the Israelites, some of them, if they wanted to, if they wanted to judge God, if they wanted to judge Joshua, if they wanted to judge the situation, they could say, this is one of those times. What maybe was no more than a week ago, they got circumcised, they got the, the foreskins of their penises cut, very painfully, I might add, lay in bed for three days to mark them as God's people. And now, just less than a week later, as they've marched, well, just over a week later, as they've marched around the city, silently, for six days straight, now yelling when they're supposed to, with it comes the, oh, and by the way, everything that's in the city is under the ban. You can't take any wealth. You won't be able to take any slaves. You don't get to keep a donkey or a saddle or ar better armor than you currently have, even though we're going into a war. You get to keep absolutely nothing, by the way. After everything that you did, being declared as God's people, you get nothing. I'm going to tell you that this sermon also has a subtitle. And the subtitle is, uh, the title is ripped off, and the subtitle is, Being a Recipe for Total Success and Absolute Victory in the Kingdom of God and Elsewhere. I'm going to tell you in this sermon today how you can have absolute victory and total success, or total victory and absolute success, you can mix it up however you want, in the Kingdom of God and elsewhere. But I'm going to tell you in advance right now, you're not going to like it. You're like, no, I want total victory. I want absolute success. But I'm going to tell you right now, you're not going to like it. And I'm going to tell you right now that what I'm going to tell you that you're also not going to like, I didn't like it either, but it's a reality. And then I'm going to tell you that it is the thing. It is the single thing that keeps both Christians and non-Christians out of the kingdom of God. Even I say Christians out of the kingdom of God. People will wear the name of Jesus their cross is on their neck, their shiny Christian t-shirt with a fancy saying, they're carrying their Bibles all over the place, they're talking about Jesus, but it can keep them out of the kingdom of God. Well, let's look at how we get there. First of all, it's a recipe, so there got to be steps, right? So Joshua, the people of Israel, they're following the steps. Number one, you got to be there. And so around Jericho they go. They're there, right where God put them. Around Jericho they go. Once a day, once a day, once a day, seven times. You got to be there in order to win the day. To have total victory, you have to show up. You have to be present. You have to be paying attention. Your effort has to be on board, right? You have to be there. So around they go. Secondly, you have to be obedient. So silently they go. Not able to talk or moan or whine or complain. Not able to share anything with the people that they're walking with. Not even to say, hi, Sam, how you doing as we walk around Jericho today? Silently they go, holding every word and every breath, not even a whisper. Silently they go. You have to be there and also be obedient. And you might say, well, I don't like that one very much, actually. But that's nothing compared to what's coming. You have to be there, be obedient, and be ready. So anticipating they go. They know a moment is coming in time where the trumpets will blow and the shout will go up and every man will go up. You know what that looks like, right? You draw your sword and you charge over the broken walls into the face of the enemy. And that day you become a soldier and I may use this term very liberally because it is not that, you commit genocide. They go anticipating the moment in time at which they will be unleashed for God to do God's work and destroy that which is under the ban, man, woman, child, and animal. 
They are there, they are obedient, they are ready. Notice then, you go up from where you are. So, without hesitation, they go up from where they are. You, they do their part. They do it diligently, working hard. They do it independently. Each person dealing with the issues that they have. We go around this room. If I ask Josie and I ask Alicia and I ask Miss June to give me the top 10 problems in their life, and I did that with everybody, by the time we got done, only a few of those would overlap and we could come up with hundreds of difficulties that people are going through right now. And yet, you're required to go up from where you are and do the work of the Lord. From your own situation, from your own difficulty, independently, diligently, you must do your part. But also unified. They all go up together. From where they are, they all go up together. So you don't get to look around at the other person and say, you know that Bob, he's always, he's going to be the death of Israel. He's such a problem. I despise him. He's causing me all kind of frustration. And that becomes your excuse why. So we say, because he's a problem, I'm not going to do what I'm supposed to do. No, it doesn't work that way. You go diligently, independently, from where you are, united, we all go up and do what it is that we've been called to do. And they're there. They've got that down. But the last one, and this is the one, you have to go ready to be ripped off. Notice that it says, only, only watch yourselves. Only control yourself. Only restrain yourself so that you don't covet some of the things that are under the ban and thereby bring a curse on the camp of Israel. Each man responsible to go up, each man individually, individually, independently, diligently, ready to do the work of the word, work of the Lord, and not get any reward. Ready to be ripped off, to give their full labor and effort for what? Because they belong to God. Because they are trusting in God. At the moment of their great victory, the city and everything in it is placed under the ban. Now the ban had existed. This was always a possibility. Moses talked about it before he died. That there would be times they had fought other places previously where the ban was put into place. That everything was given over to God and they were not allowed to take anything from it. And they had problems then. And in the future when it comes up again, they'll have problems again. Because it's hard to do the work of God and not to get any reward for it. It's hard to do the work of God alongside somebody who maybe isn't doing as well. It is hard to allow yourself to essentially be victimized by someone who will say or do something something that hurts you while you are trying to be faithful and obedient to God. That's, that's hard. And yet, it's required. We must not take for ourselves that which rightly belongs to God. You say, well, I would never do that. I would never take that which belongs to God. I mean, if I know it's his and I take it, I'd be stupid because he's God, he's big, he's powerful, crush me like a bug. I would never stand against God. Well, Unless maybe it was really, really important. Like it was about my kid. Or about my job. Or about my paycheck. I would never take that which belongs to God. But what I might do is I might question whether it really belongs to God so that I can have excuse for why I can hold it back from God. And that's what people do consider the service that people are called to and the amount of recreation that they engage in instead of doing what they're called to. <clears throat> consider how much of a struggle it is to give the tithe or above and beyond because it is the sacrificial offering that actually belongs to God. 
Consider how much of a struggle it is to control your mouth. Would you debate that your mouth belongs to God? If so, then we have to go back to basic things. Be there, be obedient, be ready, go up from where you are. Would you debate that your mouth belongs to God? Well, then why is your mouth not submitted to God? Because in the moment you debate that your mouth belongs to God, so then you take for yourself what rightly belongs to God, because why? Because you are unwilling to be ripped off. You're not going to let that person talk to you like that. You're going to let that person do that. So you're going to use your mouth, which belongs to God, not to you anyway, to do something that God would never use it for, to defend yourself. Because God is not big enough or powerful enough or good enough to defend you. You have to do it yourself with that that rightly belongs to him. Oh, we must not take for ourselves that which rightly belongs to God. Uh, you know, my version of Christianity, the be my best understanding of Christianity is couched heavily in this verse where Jesus says in Luke 9.23, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. So, you know, to deny yourself isn't to say, my name is actually Bob, not Dan. That's not denying yourself. It's not changing your name. It's not breaking ties with your parents. That's not denying self. Denying yourself is when what you want is fully submitted to what God wants. You say, well, I want this, but I see God wants this instead. So I'm going to go with what God wants, not what I want. That's denying yourself. It's denying your wants, your desires, your human nature, your tendencies, your greed. You look on it, you want it. God, you know God maybe doesn't want it for you. You say no. In fact, you say no to anything that you're not sure that God wants for you. Deny yourself and take up your cross daily. He said, take up your cross daily. Well, that means to die. To take up your cross is to die, right? They take up their cross when they're carrying it to where they're going to be crucified. You don't carry your cross at any other time. They understood what he meant. It's to be willing to die, daily to die. So you die physically once, I get that. But you die every day spiritually putting off the things that stand between you and God. Or if you don't do that, then I submit we have to go back to the regular recipe which says, be there, be obedient, be ready, go up from where you are. We must not take for ourselves that which rightly belongs to God. Romans 14.8 says this, it says, For whether we live, we live unto the Lord. And whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. And then there's a passage of scripture that I want to read to you that fits right in here in Philippians chapter 2. Now, some of you may know these verses. It's okay. I'm going to read them. If you don't know them, I'm going to read them. Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to begin in verse 1. And I want to highlight just two little tiny pieces. The, the theme of the passage is clear, okay? But I want to highlight two little tiny pieces that we sometimes kind of skim and don't pay all that much attention to if I can find Philippians chapter 2, which I can. I'm confident. There it is. Philippians chapter 2, all right? It says this, If therefore, in other words, because this is true, or if you say this is true, or if it actually is true, if therefore there is any encouragement in Christ, in other words, if there's any good thing building you up about being in Jesus, if there is any consolation of love, if you're feeling comforted by that love that you're experiencing, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if we are joined together in one Spirit, Holy Spirit in us, if any affection and compassion make my joy complete by being of the same mind, that means unify, maintaining the same love, 
United in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. In other words, don't want for yourself and go, oh no, I have to protect me in this whole situation. right? Or I'm better than someone else, so I have to make sure they don't get up on me. But with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another. That means think of other believers in your church, at least, and, and I would say in the kingdom of God, as more important than yourself. Well, if somebody's more important than me, then they deserve more than me. If somebody's more important than me, then they deserve to get up in the world more than I do. If somebody's more important than me, then they deserve more success. I should make sure. I should propel them because they're more important than me. And it says, I should consider people more importantly than me. And you're saying, but then if I do that, people will abuse me. And I get that. And yet, I submit to you, he's about to explain, he says, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. And those other people have difficulties, you're supposed to step up to take care of their difficulties. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. I say this, Jesus was ready to be ripped off. That's the difference. He says, he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, a willing slave, that's what a bondservant is, a willing slave, and being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now listen, I'm going to say it this way, Jesus got screwed. Jesus came ready to be ripped off. Who put him on the cross? The very people that he came to save. Let's not confuse that. He came knowing that they would put him on the cross and he came ready to be ripped off that way so that people could be saved. That's our model. There's no confusion in it. It's not complicated. A little bit more. Therefore, also God highly exalted and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. I love that because that says because Jesus came and was willing to be ripped off and was ripped off, God elevated him to above everybody and everything that ever existed. And I submit to you that you could claim the same exact promise. If you will work this recipe, then you can have the result of God elevating you truly into the kingdom of God, as a child of God, owning all, all the universe at your disposal. Now, probably not in this lifetime, in a sense. I also say then, if you had come willing to do everything but be ripped off, then you may have a problem. And I'll touch on that in a second. It says this, it says, that every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, all everybody, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One more verse. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Be there, be obedient, be ready, go up from where you are, be ready to be ripped off. That's what he's saying. Jesus also says this, if any man, in Luke 14, if any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Now, Jesus is not talking about hating. 
You understand that, right? Everything, almost everything in the Bible is about love, and hate is the opposite of that. We're talking about if you cannot stand opposite the things of this world, if you cannot remove yourself from worldly desires and worldly connections, if you cannot decide to be for Jesus more than anything else, sacrificing even your rights, your human rights, your right to food, your right to freedom, your right to whatever. If you cannot do that, that's what he's talking about. Because he said, and even his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us. We must be willing to take for God that which rightly belongs to God. Okay, so concluding the first thought, we must not take for ourselves that which rightly belongs to God. What rightly belongs to God? Well, everything. You, me, our children, our jobs, our finances, even our free will, our sex drives, our covetous nature, what tastes good, what doesn't, it all belongs to God. And in order to be ready to be ripped off, we have to do the same thing that they did. We have to restrain ourselves lest we covet that which belongs to God. In order to be ready to rip, be ripped off, we must realize we must not take for ourselves that which rightly belongs to God, even, and I would even say, especially when it's the most important thing of all, whatever that is to you. And then see, we must be willing to take for God that which rightly belongs to God. They, they had to go up and take Jericho. They didn't get to crush everything in Jericho, burn everything in Jericho, kill everybody in Jericho until they actually went up and took it. And so we have to be willing to take for God that which belongs to God. Because the first part makes it sound like, okay, we're just going to be a bunch of doormats. So we're just going to lay around and let people stomp on us, and that'll do it. If we let people stomp on us, we can go to heaven. No, that's a, that's a terrible version. That's not at all what Jesus did. Jesus was not a victim. He was a conquering king. He, but he was a conquering king that could only conquer death by going through death and raising to life again. He laid down his life and was allowed to take it back up again. And that's what we have to do. We must be willing to take for God that which rightly belongs to God. We've been given the Great Commission. Go ye therefore into all the earth, everywhere. We're to deliver the gospel and godly living and the truth evangelism, spread the good news that now there is remission of sins, now there is remission of sins through the sacrificial blood of the Lamb. Because it's been paid for, you can have your sins forgiven. That's the truth that we have to spread to anyone and everyone that will listen. But it's not just that, it's also spiritual warfare. We have to fight demons and evil spirits. For such and such a time, until Jesus comes again, they continue to exist in creation. And they move people, including us, to do things that we should not do. And when that's happening, your job is to figure it out and put an end to it. That's why we've been given the ability to rebuke evil spirits and to, and to overcome demons. Spiritual warfare. Go into dark places and shine a light. And then when you encounter evil spirits there, rebuke them and send them elsewhere. And we'll keep sending them elsewhere until there's nowhere else except hell to send them. 
Because that's what it'll be like when the new heaven and the new earth and hell are the only places left in all reality. And demons that are cast out of the new heaven and new earth will go to hell for an eternity. And so will people who choose them over God. Spiritual disciplines. We've been given skills to enact. We talk about, I, I, I need to clean up my mind. Well, you should be reading your Bible. You should be exercising prayer. You should be spending time in silence and solitude. You should be practicing evangelism because as we lead people to Jesus and see him having an impact in their life, then it's not only our life that we can look back at and say, man, Jesus was really real to me and he did some amazing things. In fact, I want to even submit to you, you could probably get to that point of seeing those amazing things and looking back by being ready, being obedient, being there, going up from where you are. Not even being ready to be ripped off because you could say, no, I'm doing great. I used to be a drug addict. Now I'm not. I'm doing great. I used to be unemployed. Now I'm not. I, I'm doing great. I used to lie all the time and now I don't. And, and people make changes or things happen and major events happen and things like that. Changes happen. And you could point to the changes and begin to say, I am so much better than I ever was. And good for you. But it wasn't done so that you could be better than you ever were. That's not even the goal. The goal is, one, that you can spend eternity in heaven with God, and two, that you can take as many people with you as you possibly can. And so while you look back at your life and thinking you're all great, all that in a bag of chips, you might want to think about all the people that their bag is empty. So we practice evangelism and spiritual warfare and the spiritual disciplines, and then amongst the spiritual disciplines, i got to say, and we're right in the middle of, actually we're not, we're right toward the end of our six months emphasis on this discipline, there is stewardship. Whatever is given over into your control, exercised on behalf of the Lord to do what it is that God is trying to do. Why? Because this thing belongs to Him, for crying out loud. It doesn't belong to you. And if you use it for what you want, not for what He wants, then you're taking it from God. You're doing the exact opposite of what it takes to complete this recipe. You say, but I can't. It's hard for me. My time is so pressed. Fix it. Find a way. Cut stuff out. Put God in. My experience has been every time I put God in, amazingly, more stuff fits. (laughs) But you're going to find your own way. Go up from right where you are. You don't need the pastor to give you the seven points of how you're going to make time in your schedule this week to read your Bible. You go up right from where you are and say, I am going to make time to read my Bible. I am going to make better choices with my money so I can give sacrificially to the work of the kingdom. And you say, well, any giving would be sacrificially. Well, that's probably the problem. But if it were true, then you give sacrificially. And you say, well, I may not get anything for you. Listen, is this not what we're talking about? We're talking about being willing to be ripped off. Do what God has given you to do. And if in this lifetime, God forbid, if in this lifetime, you don't come out on top, He's able to handle it. He knows exactly what to do because he's God. I submit to you, and this is the final thing to understand about being willing to be ripped off, that refusing to be ripped off is refusing to trust God. When I was a young married person, I had married Sherry, and we were uh, living together, not out of wedlock for the first time ever, and uh, she wanted to go to a party at a friend's house. And a guy that she used to date who in my estimation was more handsome than me and a better talker than me, had more money than I did, was going to be at this party. You can imagine what my thoughts were about that. I didn't know Jesus. I was thinking to myself, I'm going to do everything I possibly can to make sure that he doesn't get his hands on my goods. 
In fact, I even drove, not telling her, mind you, I even drove to the party and sat outside so I would know exactly when his car was there, exactly when her car was there, and exactly when he left and exactly when she left. And I tried to leave in time to make sure that she didn't ever know I was there. But it didn't work because one of her friends said, wasn't that Dan sitting in his car outside? Why didn't he come in? And so I got caught trying to conserve for myself what didn't belong to me in the first place. You understand? It didn't belong to me in the first place. This is how you're successful as a married person. Stop thinking you own your spouse. Give them to Jesus because they belong to him. You say, well, they're not saved, so they don't belong. Listen to me. I'm trying to get this across. Everything belongs to Jesus, and everyone belongs to Jesus. And if they're not saved, that's not really your problem. They still belong to Jesus. You still have to give them to Jesus. There's a passage of Scripture, and I won't go there right this moment, but in Corinthians, about a man who was a, a horrible Christian, if he even was, had gotten into some terrible sin. And Paul says, kick him out so Satan can teach him a lesson. And what he meant was, kick him out so Satan can remind him that he belongs to Jesus. Everybody belongs to Jesus. If you don't trust your husband or your wife, then the problem is really you don't trust God. You say, but it's not that. God's good, but my husband isn't. (laughs) But your husband belongs to God. God's good, but my wife isn't. But your wife belongs to God. If your wife goes off and rips you off with another man... You have to be ready for that in order to have total success in your marriage. You have to be willing that your significant other would go and behind your back do whatever it is that you don't want them to do in order for you to actually be married to that person. That's a requirement. And it works in every other area too. You want to really, really be good at your job? You want to have the best opportunity for forward advancement in your career? Pour yourself in and don't worry about what they pay you. Don't worry about what they pay you or how they schedule you or whatever. Just pour yourself in. Now, don't put it before God. I'm not saying do that. Obviously, put God first because you can't have total victory without God at the helm, right? But otherwise, don't worry about it. You say, well, they're abusing me. They hired somebody who works in the There are people right now making minimum wage who make more than anybody in this room because they work two jobs 40 hours a week. Both of them minimum wage. And in a year and a half, they'll have $500,000 in the bank and buy themselves a little business, and then they'll be their own boss. And none of us are going to do that. You don't have to worry about what you make. You have to work, because that's been given for you to do. You have to be there, be obedient, be ready and anticipating. Go up from where you are and be ready to be ripped off. That is the recipe for total success in life, and it works in everything. Who here could stop a suicide bomber came in the room right now? Already has his finger on the plunger. And if anybody killed him or anybody took him down, he'd immediately blow up. Who could stop that? Nobody. You can't stop it. You know why? Because they're ready. They're there. They're obedient. They're ready and anticipating. They've gone up from where they are. And they're ready to be ripped off. Now, there is a problem, isn't there? Because they're not actually victorious. They blow themselves up believing in a lie and go straight to hell. It's a horrible thing. Because they've trusted in something that isn't worthy of their trust. Here's what God says. I kind of like the way Job says it, but then I want to say it the way I felt like the Holy Spirit said it to me as I looked at it. Job said this, Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. But then Job got it just a little bit wrong. He said, But I will maintain mine own ways before him. Which is why when God stands before Job, 
The first part is why God vindicates Job, and the second part is why God chastises Job. So I submit to you, if you could live, take, if you could live, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him, then you could stand before God fully vindicated. Job was our pattern, right? Look at all that he went through. Did Job get ripped off? Absolutely. Lost all his kids, all his stuff, all his lands, all his health. He lost it all. And all the while stayed faithful to God. And he lived, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. But he also lived, but I will maintain mine own ways before him. And when he came in front of God, he was chastised for that second half and praised for the first half. So just live the first half. Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Be there, be obedient, be ready and anticipating. Go up from where you are and be ready to be ripped off and you will be totally and absolutely victorious and successful in the kingdom of God. And I submit to you, it could be in any other way or in any other place and you would be totally... No one can stop you. No one can stop you if you're living that way. So this is the conclusion that I think that God gave me and the Holy Spirit gave me. says, Go and take the enemy by the throat and then ask God what you want, what he wants you to do with him. That's what you're supposed to do. Go and take the enemy by the throat and then look to God for direction. In your life, in your finances, in your getting out of bed and your laying down at night, in your relationships, broken or good, either way. Go and take the enemy by the throat. And I'm not talking about hurting people. This is not people. People are not our enemy. Flesh is not our enemy, right? I'm talking about evil spirits and spiritual warfare and practicing spiritual disciplines. I'm talking about going in there and being there and being obedient and being ready and anticipating what God is going to do and going up from wherever you are to diligently, independently, and unified with other believers. Do what you're supposed to do. And being ready, if necessary, and when necessary, I'll say it that way, to be ripped off. Go and take the enemy by the throat and when you have him under your boot heel, then look to God and say, just like the gladiator looked to Caesar, thumbs up or thumbs down? And God will say thumbs down. And then you can dismiss that thing from your life. And not until then. Because you never had it under control. You never had yourself under control. And you never gave it over to God. Go and take the enemy by the throat and then look to God for direction. Be there. Be obedient. Be ready and anticipating. Go up from where you are, ready to be ripped off. This being a recipe for total success and absolute victory in the kingdom of God and elsewhere. And the enemy knows it just as well as we do. And so he'll let you be there. He'll let you be obedient. He'll let you be ready and anticipating. He'll let you be going up from right where you are but it'll always be in your mind. Always be in your thinking. Always be in your training. Saying, ah, you know, but don't let yourself get ripped off. Don't, don't allow yourself to be taken out or to be crushed. Don't allow yourself to have somebody take advantage of you. He'll always be there trying, not, trying to get you to not do the one thing that completes the recipe. And I submit to you that many of us, that's what we're doing. Are you a follower of Jesus? I mean, let's be serious. Jesus was ready to be ripped off. In fact, Jesus was ripped off. If you're a Christian, that means you're a little Christ. That means you're ready to be ripped off. And I submit to you that in human thinking, in worldly terms, you will be ripped off. You will give 
more than anyone in your current situation could ever give if you are following the Lord. You will serve more. You will spend yourself. You will run dry only to have Him fill up your cup. And when you're ripped off, it'll be God that will pick you up and fill you up and heal you up and promote you. Just as it was with Jesus. As Jesus was given all that glory and everybody said, hey, he's alive. He was dead and he's alive. Now, who would not listen to him now? You know what he said? He said, God. God owns it all. God expects more of you than you're giving. God's not laughing anymore. You will reap what you sow. So if you try to protect yourself, then when your protections run out, you will spend eternity away from God. But if you will let God be your protection, if you will let God determine when and if you will be ripped off, if you will let God determine when and if you give and serve and do, even knowing that it will cost you more than you are willing to pay, then you begin to look like Jesus. And looking like Jesus in that way is enough to complete this recipe. And then like Job, you can stand before God and say, here is my servant Job. Have you considered him? Here is my servant Perrier. Here is my servant Alicia. Have you considered them? And people will say, oh yeah, he's sort of like getting it left and right, man. There, he gives, but he never gets anything back in return. He serves, but he never gets anything back in return. I mean, he's been doing this for years. What's he got to show for it? He looks worn out or tired or he's at near the end of his life and he doesn't have careers and cars and houses and, and all kinds of prominence. What's he got to show for it? And then he or she dies and goes to heaven for an eternity and has plenty to show for it. But the enemy and the world and the people around you will always say, don't let yourself be used. Don't let yourself be ripped off. I submit to you that that is exactly what we must do. Some monks, Christian and otherwise, have discovered this truth and they gave up everything they had. Some people in cults they joined cults and they, they gave up their houses, their cars, their income. They essentially became slaves because they tried to distance themselves from the things of this world. But, but that's not what it's talking about. How do you put your hand around the throat of the enemy when you leave the world, essentially? That doesn't even make any sense. We're in there fighting. We're doing what it is that we're supposed to be doing and you keep doing it. You're ready and obedient and anticipating and going up from where you are and ready to be ripped off every day of your life and you get out of bed and you just keep investing. Oh, I know what the problem is. I think, I think the Lord showed me what the problem is. There was a young man in his late teens, early 20s, and he met a young woman that he was madly in love with. This young man was a consummate liar. Told all kinds of lies all the time. And as he was dating this woman, she loved to hear the stories of the places that he had traveled to. The things that he had seen and done. Amazing stories of amazing places. He was flamboyant in his speech and he told all about all the places that he had been. And eventually, she fell in love with him and they got married. And then he spent the rest of his life saying, oh no, I don't want to go there again. Let's go somewhere else. Always trying to go places and not expose the fact that he lied about dozens of places that he'd never been when he was courting her. Except that those kind of lies always come back to haunt you Luke 9.23 says, If anyone would follow me, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow after me. I know why Christians 
supposed Christians aren't willing to be taken advantage of, misused, abused, ripped off. Oh, it's because they've never been to Luke 9.23. Oh, wait a minute. If they've never been to Luke 9.23, are they really Christians? Not according to Jesus. And so in churches all over America today, there are people who will sit and they will listen to the sermon and they will sing the songs, and some of them better than I sing, most of them probably, some of them better than I listen, many of them probably. But they didn't come in willing to be ripped off. I can't tell you the number of people that have come, accepted Jesus, and as soon as the going gets hard, or things don't quite work, or someone says something I don't like, or the church is not going in quite the direction I had hoped it was, or they chose the wrong color carpet in the sanctuary, or this person has too much authority, or that person looked at me in a cross way, or I get the feeling that, and it just goes on. Christian, if you're a follower of the Lord, you need to be there, you need to be obedient, you need to be ready and anticipating. You need to go up from where you are, whatever that looks like, and you need to be ready to be ripped off. If you can't do that, you may be following some guy named Jesus, but he was probably born in a small town in Mexico and it's actually pronounced Jesus. Because our Jesus said, anybody who hasn't been to the moment in time at which they decide to deny themselves and take up their cross daily cannot follow him. In John chapter 9, there were men that looked at a man in the street and they said, "What? Well, this man's blind. What's the problem? Is he born blind because of his sin or because of his parents' sin? And Jesus says, neither. But so that God may get the glory in what's about to be done. I'm paraphrasing. Did you see it? We sometimes get ripped off. And in doing so, we stay there, obedient, anticipating, going up from where we are. And the kingdom of God, God himself, gets the glory. If you're not willing to be ripped off, all you're doing is taking back from God that which rightfully belongs to him. So that he can win people to himself. This is why Christianity is not still spreading like wildfire. What did the disciples have that we don't have? Well, they had the Holy Spirit. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not saved. Oh, okay, well, it wasn't that then. They had a good name. No, they didn't. Everybody hated them. Well, they had, uh, they were educated men. No, they were all stupid farmers and fishermen. Except for maybe like the tax collector dude. Everybody else was really dumb. They were like us. I'm not saying you're dumb. I'm saying compared to people who, what you might think they would be like, that's, they were more like us, common folk. What did they have that we don't have that Christianity is not spreading like wildfire all over the world right now, the same as it was in the day of the disciples? I'll tell you what they had. Well, they were there. They were obedient. They were anticipating. They went up right from where they were and they were ready to be ripped off. And guess what? They were ripped off. Most of them were martyred. Peter was hung upside down on a cross. He, as he was being taken out to be crucified, the story goes, he said, don't hang me like Jesus. And they said, oh, don't worry, we won't. And they hung him upside down to be crucified. He got ripped off. And did he scream as they were crucifying him? Oh, I was wrong. I shouldn't have believed in God. No. 
Did the popes or bishops or the young, the young Christians in the church for the 300, first 300 years, did they ever, is there one account of somebody being burned alive or crucified that was saying, I don't believe in Jesus? No. You know why the church was spreading like wildfire then? Because it was actually the church. The church was willing to be ripped off. People say, well, I'm giving them groceries. I think they, they should be able to take care of themselves. I'm not going to solve their problems. They should be able to step up. What's wrong with them anyway? I'm not going to help him or her. She say, he or she said something that I don't like. I'm not going to involve these people in my life. No. It's not Christianity. It's time. Jesus said, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. So you live like Job. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And live like Jesus. I lay down my life that I may take it up again. And then you've completed the recipe for total success and absolute victory in the kingdom of God and everywhere else. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to this sermon from New Heights Fellowship Baptist Church of East Toledo. New Heights Fellowship was a Southern Baptist church which constituted in the year 2016. We are actively doing urban ministry located at 255 Hefner Street in Toledo. There's a lot more information about New Heights Fellowship online at newheightsfellowshipchurch.org. That's newheightsfellowshipchurch.org. There you can find an opportunity to give if you wish to. Uh, you can also give uh, by texting G-I-V-E, that's the word give, to the phone number 419-419-0095, which you can give one time or reoccurring. There's also information online about the Southside Life Station, which is a mission work in Toledo, and the Firestorm Church Planting and Evangelism Network, which New Heights Fellowship is the lead church in that network.